I literally said out loud, I'm, I'm hooked. That's James Gallipo, elite Canadian adventure racer. His story coming up next. Welcome to Happily Ever Active, where we crack the consistency code with fitness tips on motivation, mindset, and much, much more. Now, here's your host, author of Feel Like It, and the guy with the silent O, Kelly Dell. Hello to you. I hope you've had a great week filled with enjoyable exercise in whatever form that took. Welcome to an interview edition of the show. And you know, you often see really, really fit people, even elite athletes. And it's easy to overlook the fact that every single one of them has a story, a fitness story. No matter how proficient you are at running or how strong you are in the gym or how bendy you are in yoga class, every single loyal marriage to movement came with an initial spark. And honestly, I don't know many who describe their evolution better than my guest today. James Gallipo is an elite adventure racer. He's competed in nearly every corner of the planet over the last decade. And if you don't know what adventure racing is, you will soon. So don't worry about that. James grew up near Windsor, the southernmost tip of Canada, and he currently lives in Abbotsford, British Columbia. And it won't take long to tell that James is a pretty smart cookie, as evidenced also by the fact that he's got a doctorate in education from the University of Ottawa. All of this is to say that he's as insightful as they come, especially when it comes to the mental side of performance and endurance. Now, I know that some of you get really switched on by competing at what you love to do, so you'll really relate to some of his reflections today. But if you're currently trying to figure out your own fit in fitness, if you've sort of struggle to find something that really resonates with you, you will definitely find inspiration in James's story, which began modestly in a tiny little Canadian town. So let's bounce around James's brain a bit and pull out some lessons from his happily active lifestyle. And to do that, let's first hear him snapshot his lifestyle and describe what the heck adventure racing is in the first place. Take a listen. So what an adventure race is, is basically a combination of mountain biking, paddling in some form, trekking or trail running. And then all of that is using a map and compass and in teams of usually four and usually co-ed. So your team decides when it's going to sleep, when it's going to eat. You What you get from the organizers is you get a mapping and you bring your compass and you have to navigate without GPS or any other kind of assistance like that. And they will tell you where the checkpoints are on this map. And you base, and they'll tell you what mode of transport that you need to use to get between the checkpoints. And uh, you have to find your way in between those checkpoints. It's up to you to just to determine your route, which can mean things like, do we go straight over the mountain or do we go around the mountain? Do we bushwhack or do we stay on trail? You know, those kind of things. Do we go to a place where there's going to be a potential large stream crossing or do we walk an extra three kilometers to get to a bridge? Those are all decisions you have to make. And it's not always apparent what the best decision is. And often the races are designed so there is no best decision. So we're out there, four of us making our way through uh, what can be some pretty harsh environmental conditions, uh, terrain, and you you have to deal with them as they come up and you it, it's a lot of problem solving 
if one person drops out of the race, everyone is done. The, the race is done, or at least you're not ranked anymore. So everybody has to move together. You're not allowed to get spread apart. If you get more than 100 meters apart, you're, you get a penalty. So I've raced uh, in Patagonia. I raced in Australia a couple times. Uh, I raced in Europe a bunch of times. Raced in South America, other places, Brazil, North America. Where else? I haven't raced in Africa or much in Asia. So those are kind of two of the top bucket list things for me. That's my travel. That's my vacation time. I, I basically spend my free vacation time and money to go do those things because they're, racing is, is a quite expensive sport between the equipment you need to do the sport and the travel and then bringing all of that equipment and race entry fees. It, it's very expensive. So that's how I spend most of my <laughs> extra time and money is, is going to all these races. But I've gotten to see some incredible places. And one of the beautiful parts about the sport is that often when a race is put on, they're, they're well connected to the Ministry of Tourism because they want to showcase what that region has to offer from a natural perspective. They want to take you to the most beautiful and amazing places that they have to offer. So I, I love it also for that part is that you get to see some really remote corners of the world. Um, you know, we, we had one race, uh, it was in Brazil where we ran across all these incredible beaches. It was just this long, I think it was like a 25 kilometer beach run and you were running, you know, in and out of all these little beaches and they were incredible. And every place you just were like, I could just stop here for a day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. Very cool. Beaches. Um, not many beaches where you grew up though. So tell us a little bit about life in a small town, um, near Windsor, Ontario and what your basically what your upbringing was, especially when it comes to physical activity and exercise. I was a pretty active kid. I was always playing sports and goofing around in the, in the fields behind my house ever since I was pretty young. And, uh, but I always played court sports and field sports. Um, I didn't know what adventure racing was. There was no adventure racing when I was growing up. That didn't exist. So I played a lot of, you know, uh, basketball, volleyball, badminton, baseball, those kind of sports. The area I grew up in was not really uh, a lot of green space, I would say. There was open space, but it was mostly fields. So I always had a, you know, I always had a kind of a connection to natural settings, but I didn't get a lot of exposure to it. Um, so I played what was available in my little town. And then when I got into high school, I was exposed to more sports. So I did a sport called team handball, European handball, which I knew nothing about. But when I saw it, I was pretty, uh, pretty taken by it. Now, despite you having a pretty sporty background, there's nothing really in there that indicates that you would have this epic adventure racing career where you'd be racing in all these interesting places all over the world. So where did that interest or that first uh, initial spark um, present itself for you? In high school, the internet was just kind of coming into its own. And uh, yeah, that's a long time ago. <laughs> but uh, I, I heard about this thing called Eco Challenge. And uh, I didn't know much about it, but I did some research online and I found out it was it was an adventure race. So back when adventure racing started, it was only these big, long expedition races in some crazy location around the world. So when I first saw it, I was like, this is, this is the coolest thing I think I've ever heard of or seen. And then I did a little bit of research on it and it turns out it was about $10,000 for a team. And there were all these different uh, skills that you had to have, like certifications you had to have to be able to compete. So it kind of took the wind out of my sails. 
you know, I thought, wow, that would have been so cool. But it kind of, that was the first time I really thought about doing any of those activities or sports because I had never done, I had never mountain biked. I had never spent a lot of time in trails or especially bushwhacking or paddling. Those were all, you know, foreign activities or sports to me because they weren't, I didn't get exposed to them up to that point. Okay, so you had that spark early on, that interest. You you came across the Eco Challenge and you ran into some barriers. So when did things really change for you? When did um, adventure racing really take root for you, I guess? Fast forward a few years, I uh, finished high school and decided to go to uh, move to Ottawa to do a my first year undergraduate. Living there for a year, I kind of got exposed a little bit to more natural settings, a little bit more green space. So I came, I, I wanted to come back to Ottawa to do my master's degree. So when I moved there, I ended up meeting someone who, uh, I don't even know how it came up in conversation, but I had mentioned something about Eco Challenge and adventure racing. And, uh, this person also had heard of it and they're like, yeah, that would be really cool to do that. And so we looked into it and it turns out that there were shorter races by this time. There were, you know, uh, five to eight hour races. And uh, it turned out we we had a mutual friend who had done a race before. So we talked to this person and they obviously talked highly about it. And uh, he, he said, well, I'll take you on a race if you want, you know. So I was like, well, that's super exciting. Not only was it a, a first taste of adventure racing, but it was a it was a big bite to 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 chew on because it was a winter race. There was actually mountain biking in it, but it was on kind of gravel roads. And then there was uh, snowshoeing and I believe some cross-country skiing, if I remember right. The day of the race, it was minus 25. And our bikes were actually freezing up to the point where you had to push them instead of biking with them. Everything was frozen. So we started in the race and I, I quickly realized I was in over my head a little bit. It was pretty overwhelming with the the cold, which I still wasn't used to growing up in southwestern Ontario, and then dealing with the snow conditions and and biking was still pretty new to me. So it was uh, it was tough. It was really a big struggle, and the race was to last uh, five to eight hours. So we were expecting to be out there for eight hours, and I had never done anything close to eight hours long before. That sounds pretty crazy when you think about it. That you're you're diving into this sport. Uh you know, during the winter season, it's cold. What do you remember what was going through your mind or what you remember about your mental state as you were trying to complete this race, you know, your very first race? I just remember thinking most of the way, this, this is really hard. Like it's, it's hard, you know, it's, it's really neat to be doing it, but man, is this tough? At one point, I just remember, I think it was probably about Three or four hours in, I was struggling. You know, everyone was struggling. We were thinking, how, how are we going to do this for eight hours? How are we going to come out with our toes still intact and our <laughs> fingers? And it just, I don't know. I, I, I don't really know how to describe it, but something kind of came over me where I was like, I'm, I don't feel comfortable. I'm way out of my comfort zone. But I literally said out loud, I'm, I said, I'm hooked. This is this is the coolest thing I've ever done. I want to do this again, even though I wasn't even sure I was going to be able to finish at that point. Man, that's really cool. And so you you finish this race, you have probably a lot of different emotions and, and feelings about it. Um, it was difficult. Your toes are intact, hopefully, I I would assume. So what is it that compels you to do another one, to go back? 
getting into a, a truly uh, natural environment, like actually getting into wilderness, was still a very new experience for me at that time, and I was captivated by it. it was it was a, that was a coming home experience for me to be immersed in that natural environment. It just felt like this is where I want to be. This is the kind of place I want to be exerting myself, and so I kind of really felt attached to that almost instantly. In the term, in terms of physically, physiologically, I did not feel good, and I don't. You don't necessarily feel good in a race, but there's something larger than that. There's a. It's more than. It's like a a kinesthetic connection with what you're doing, where it feels right. Discomfort is something that I. I don't necessarily love feeling uncomfortable, but I love how that connects me with my natural environment. It connects me with my body. There's that overriding feeling of this is the environment I want to be in. I found a place where I feel kind of at home. So what you're saying is that here we have a handball player, a really talented handball player who's about to make this drastic change in sports. So tell me more about this transition into adventure racing and what it really meant for you. It piqued a a massive curiosity in me to learn more about what was out there. You know, so I, I had learned about this one winter race, but I was, you know, very interested in finding out, okay, are, are there more races? Are there, you know, there's obviously must be summer races. Are there longer races, shorter races? So I, I started to become a bit of a, a student of the sport where I wanted to learn more about it. And then the other big thing is it made me want to start doing all of the activities on a regular basis. I got a better bike. I started looking at, okay, what kind of shoes do I need to do this? What kind of clothing? What kind of gear? All these things. Um, learn how to paddle. I took, uh, you know, a, a little bit of a paddling course to, to learn how to be better at paddling. So I, I didn't know what I was getting into. I just know that it felt good to do that thing. And so I wanted to do it again and again and again. So I started looking for the next opportunity to do that and then people to do that with. So I started you know, looking online to see are there other people that are looking for teammates or that, you know, um, I remember going to, uh, it was kind of an open house for people that were interested in adventure racing. And I went there and that's where I met my future teammates who were also looking for, you know, they were new to the sport, but looking for other people to do some races with. So I just, I kind of got enthralled by the whole idea of it and then wanted to learn more about it. So I kind of just let that curiosity flow into different areas, whether it was physically training to learn the sports better, the activities better, or trying to connect with people who were doing those things and, and learn from them. But it just kind of started to snowball into into finding new opportunities to to do that thing again and, and try it again and see what would happen, to see if I liked it as much the second and third and fourth time as I liked it the first time. This transition is really fascinating from one sport to another, and it's, it's these sports are so different. Tell me more about um, how you became a part or you joined this adventure racing community and, and what happened in your life. Because I know that people who are starting their fitness journeys, there's often a lot of social change that goes with finding something that you really like and sort of pouring your heart into it. So can you tell me a little bit more about that side of things? I think the biggest thing was that the the people I had known up to that point, because of growing up in a small town, growing up in southwestern Ontario where there wasn't a lot of big green space, I was only exposed to people who were doing similar things to me. And then having moved to Ottawa and all of a sudden meeting people who were you know interested in these races, a lot of these people were 
um, they had grown up in natural environments or they were now spending a lot more time. So they were people who were, who regularly hiked or paddled or, you know, mountain biked or things like that. And, and so this was a completely new group to me. These are people that kind of lived and breathed some of these things, not everybody, but a lot of them. And it kind of opened, it, it just opened a new world to me. Like, wow, people do this all the time. It's not that I didn't know it, but actually then getting to meet people who lived that as a part of their, either their, you know, their history and or their, their current life, um, I started meeting people that were, you know, they lived an outdoor based activity life. And that was foreign to me, but very exciting. And so every time I would meet someone, you know, you'd ask them questions and find out, oh, they, they like to do this or like to do that. And so then sometimes I would almost invite myself <laughs> to say, oh, I, I would like to try that, you know? So I started going on hikes with people and little bike rides with people and just learning their philosophy or their approach to their outdoor activities versus what I used to do. You know, all my training was you go to a gym or you go to a field and you have your set practice and you get better and you might practice it a lot. But most of these people that I met now were living more of an outdoor lifestyle, which was quite different. It was that they did this as part of their leisure, not just part of their training, right? And so that was that completely opened my eyes to, hey, this is something that is it extends beyond sport. It's not just about adventure racing. It's about living a certain lifestyle that you get to go out and play in nature all the time. And that was fascinating to me. Man, it's hard to comprehend how much time that you actually spend on the move, you know, as, as someone preparing for, you know, a week long race, like just the sheer volume or the time spent on your bike or, or running, uh, paddling and, and whatnot. It's just a, an immense time investment. I know you probably don't see it as an investment by now. Um, what, what's that like to have uh, essentially adopted this new lifestyle? Because it seems to me you can't really separate the sport from a lifestyle. After 15 years, I still think of it as going out to play. I go outside to play. I just do it often. I do it five, six, sometimes seven days a week. But it's at a different speed. Sometimes I go really hard, but other times it's just getting outside. It's just getting your body moving every day. The biggest thing for me is to move my body every day in some way or another. And it doesn't matter at the end of the day if I paddle or if I mountain bike or if I hike. It matters at the end of the week or every couple of weeks that I balance that out. But if I don't feel like paddling one day, that's okay. I, I'm still going to go do something else. Even if I don't feel like I want a mountain bike, I'll just go for a walk or a hike. It all counts as training for me, but it also counts as getting outside to just do something that I enjoy and being in nature. These are things that I'm going to carry with me well beyond my, you know, competitive sporting career. Yeah, I can totally see how, you know, the lifestyle part of this, the lifestyle change is, is so appealing, uh, especially how you just described it. So what is it about competing at this that really draws you back? What are the factors involved that have helped you fall in love with this sport? When I first started out, you know, five hours to eight hours seemed like almost impossible. And uh, now I race, you know, I've raced up to nine, 10 days nonstop, but it's been an evolution. I didn't, you know, after completing a bunch of five to eight hour races, I thought, oh, I'll try a 14-hour race. And that turned into a 24-hour race, which is the first time going overnight, which is a huge step, right? And then it just kind of progressed from there. But it, it's been in very small steps 
over the years, it took me quite a while before I was willing to try, you know, a true, what they call an expedition race, which is really three days or longer, but it's all been in increments, right? So it's been working up to that. Yeah. And that evolution is really fascinating to hear about because you've been doing this for, you know, a decade. And I guess it's, like you said, it's an incremental development because you're pushing your boundaries and pushing your boundaries. But one thing, I guess, too, that adventure racing is a team sport. So you're pushing boundaries in a race together with other people. And that's a an important dynamic to all of this. So tell me a little bit more about what's it like to be out in these situations. Yeah, these beautiful parts of the world and challenging yourself, but doing so with teammates. At some point, pretty much everybody is going to be at their worst. I'll give you an example. We were mountain biking one night. It was the middle of the night. I think it was probably night two or maybe night three of the race. And it was very cold out. And so our navigator was saying, I'm exhausted. I need to stop and sleep. I can't read the map anymore. I can't see where I'm going. We need to stop and sleep. And I had another teammate who was saying, if we stop, I'm going to get hypothermic. We can't stop. There's no way. It's too cold. We're not going to, you know, I won't make it further if we have to stop. So what do you do? Again, that's, that's a situation where problem solving comes in. So we worked as we moved forward. We, we found ourselves a solution. The solution was we would stop for 15 minutes. And as soon as we stopped, the navigator did not do anything except lay down on the ground and go to sleep. And then the other, so we're four, right? So the other person who was super cold, as soon as they stopped, the other two of us took care of that person, got a, the emergency blanket out, wrapped them up, got them warm. And then once that person was taken care of them, we also took out another emergency blanket and wrapped up the navigator so he wouldn't get too cold while he slept. You often hear stories about things that go really sideways. Um, I've been extremely lucky that I've had some very good teammates. We managed to deal with most situations quite effectively or efficiently, or at least without getting at each other's throats. But um, it happens quite often where there there are some pretty serious disagreements that can lead to some pretty troubled situations. And at the risk of sounding extremist, it is sometimes life and death situations. Um, not always, but help is not right around the corner. Uh, mm. It can be hours sometimes before you can get help. So making poor decisions at the very least can knock you out of the race. At the very worst can put you in a, in a very dangerous situation. Yeah. And that's really crazy to think about because you're in these situations. And one of the, I guess, defining features of adventure racing, it seems to me, is that you're doing a lot of these things. You're you're pushing yourselves, but you're also pushing yourselves when you're facing fatigue, right? You're, I guess, for all intents and purposes, you're sleep deprived. So tell me about the role of sleep and fatigue in this whole process. It's fascinating it, from a, a psychological perspective to see how that affects people. So um, sometimes it's harder to sleep than other times. Sometimes you you just don't sleep because you're choosing not to sleep. You want to go, like often in our longer races, we'll go without sleep the first night. And then the second night, we'll try to go sleep somewhere between an hour and a half and three hours before first light so that your body starts to wake up once there's first light and you'll start to get your energy back. Uh, so you're going a pretty long time before getting your first actual sleep. And that'll only be anywhere from an hour and a half to maybe three hours maximum. And that's on night two of longer races. But hallucinations are quite frequent in racing. People can lose track of reality pretty quickly. Often it's comical. Most often it's comical. I have 
uh, heard of situations. I have friends who have been in situations where it became dangerous, but often it's, it's comical because you, you know what you're seeing is not there, but you can still see it. The, the most common one is you're seeing, uh, stumps that look like black bears all the time. That's quite common. Everybody has that kind of similar situation. Your mind's always trying to be vigilant about that. But I had a teammate, uh, we were bombing down a mountain on our mountain bikes and, and she just kind of shouted out. She's like, I can see vehicles parked in the bush. She's like, I know they're not there, but I can see them. And she's pointing out, she's, there's a blue truck over there and there's a orange car over here. She's like, I know they're not there, but I can see them. It's fascinating. And, and sometimes you can have these ongoing conversations with someone where they're, you know, they're, they're awake for all intents and purposes, but what their brain is computing on what they see just is not, it's not reality. So usually at least one person can keep reason when you're looking at the maps and people are not quite thinking straight. You know, you always hope that there's at least one teammate that'll say, I don't think that's a good idea. Yeah, I can totally believe that. And that, that that's just a, another dynamic of, of many that make adventure racing so fascinating. So you've got this communication uh, or these lines of communication that you've got to keep positive and of course efficient when it comes to um, being successful at adventure racing to to compete at a high level. But then you're also dealing with fatigue and not to mention the actual physical challenge of pushing yourself in these environments uh, for up to a week or longer in uh, the case of these expedition races. So shed some light on what it's like on the physical side, um, the struggle to do with the physical side of adventure racing. When everyone else is also feeling, you know, similar discomfort, it can be a real poison on the team. And it, it has led teams to, to quit because all of a sudden you start thinking about your own struggle and you're like, oh, then you, it, it just snowballs really quickly. And so why am I doing this again? And people start thinking about their, you know, their partners or their kids at home. And they're like, oh, this, this is stupid. Why am I here doing this? And it, it just snowballs and to the point where some teams have found themselves quitting. And as soon as they quit, Afterwards, they have instant regret once they're, you know, once they've stopped for a minute, well, or a, a few hours anyways, they have instant regret and want to be back out racing. But it's just that you're, you're always kind of pushing that line of, of discomfort. But for me, there's a, there's a difference between struggling and suffering. Struggling, I think, is a natural part of doing this type of sport. It's guaranteed that you're going to have physical discomfort. You're going to have mental discomfort. But to me, suffering is something it's when you don't want to be having that discomfort ultimately you you don't want to be in that situation or at least it, it's not it's not working for you so for me i accept the fact that i'm going to struggle in a race and when i'm struggling in a race it's okay for me the way i function is that i'm allowed to think whatever i want i can complain as much as i want in my head i can do whatever i want in my thoughts as long as i keep moving forward there's a difference when you see someone struggling versus when you see someone suffering. Like when I see a teammate suffering, I don't want them to continue. I don't want them to continue the race because I know they don't want to be there at that point. And when you see it, it's, it's, it's interesting because I didn't think of it before, but you can see the difference between a person who's struggling and a person who's suffering. And I think it has to do with their intention moving forward. When you have a team who's all struggling and all struggling together, that can be a bonding experience when you have a team who's suffering for some reason or a teammate who's suffering, it can make for a very awkward and uncomfortable mm. experience. 
I don't want, I wouldn't want to continue if I was suffering then because it means the enjoyment of doing that activity is gone. So when I get to a point where I, you know, I'm really in a, in a bad physical and mental spot, I just remind myself or I even ask myself, you know, so would you rather be somewhere else? I mean, I would rather be sitting down and not doing anything for a little while just to, you know, I, you always want to have, you always want that to stop. Like you don't want to be feeling as bad as you do, but there's an overarching kind of challenge there. I want to know what happens next in my story of this race or in my team's story of this race. So my curiosity about will we make it or not, or will we achieve our goals or not, is stronger than my need or my desire to stop. Sometimes it's really close. I, I have been in a race where we spent 12 hours looking for a checkpoint through the night in thunderstorms, and we could not find this checkpoint. We went from every different direction and back and forth and back and forth, and we just could not find it. And at the end of 12 hours, looking in the same, you know, kind of two-kilometer radius, we got frustrated and, and gave up. This was early on in our career. And an hour later, sitting in the back of a pickup truck going to the finish line, we all just looked at each other like, what did we do? Even though at the time, everyone kind of was in agreement because we were so frustrated. But that feeling sticks with me all the time. The Having given into that, ultimately, we didn't want to stop racing. We just were frustrated. In any adventure race, the, the kind of the golden rule is you don't make any big decisions until you've slept. Yeah, when you think about that, that's really, uh, you know, pretty good life advice, I think. And I'm also curious, as you're describing and you're, you're telling some of these stories, what moments really stick out where you personally, or maybe your team, if you can speak on behalf of your team or one of your teams, um, when have you really felt vulnerable when you're in a race where you really felt maybe a little bit worried about the situation that you were in? Uh, one of my first uh, big expedition races was uh, in uh, Haida Gwaii, so Queen Charlotte Islands, which is now Haida Gwaii, northern coast of British Columbia. Um, we had been racing, and one of our teammates dropped out of the race kind of early on. So we were only three of us, and we went on this. It was a 14-hour paddling section with these big, giant, inflatable rafts that were not meant to be <laughs> paddled. So we were paddling and, uh, you know, it's just this monster long paddle along the shoreline. And we kind of noticed this particular feature on the side of the, you know, on, on the shoreline. And then we were paddling longer, longer, longer. And then we <laughs> noticed the same feature again, like an hour later. Was this one of the stumps? No, it was, it was the same feature because we hadn't been moving because of the tide change. So once we realized we haven't been moving, we were like, oh my God, we have been going, we've been literally going nowhere because there's some pretty monster tide changes out there. So we decided the smartest thing to do was to pull onto shore because we were starting to get cold. Um, so we decided we'd pull onto shore and uh, make ourselves a fire. And then we would try and warm up a little bit. And then once the tide had changed or, you know, uh, was not pulling as hard, we would then get back on the water and continue paddling. So it was starting to get dark out. And uh, so we pulled over and we started looking for dry, anything dry that would burn. But uh, the island is a temperate rainforest. So there was very little that was dry. So we went through our first aid kit and pulled out everything that was paper or cardboard and put it in a little pile. 
and everyone's all three of us, the, the, all of our energy was invested in getting this fire going. Everyone was thinking the same thing. We'll be okay when we get this fire going. It'll, we'll get warmed up and then we'll be okay. So we get this little pile of, you know, cardboard and paper all together, pull out the lighter, click, click, lighter doesn't work. Try it again, doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work. And we just, everyone looked up at each other at the same time and everyone's, you could see the fear in each other's eyes. It was like, this is a bad situation. We are nowhere close to help. Like, even if we called for help at that point, it probably would have been five or six hours easily to get help to us. And they, they're not going to send help generally unless, you know, they'll ask you, is, are, is someone seriously injured? And if you say no, they'll say, well, you're on your own. Like, because there's so few resources in terms of help out there that if they start coming to help people who are just tired or quit and then something serious happens, that's, that could be someone's life on the line. So they're not going to come and get you just because you're, you're quitting or because you're tired or even if you've broken a wrist or something like that. Um, so anyways, we looked up at each other and, you know, we realized we're in a, we're in a serious situation here and we were all pretty new to racing. So, um, what we ended up doing is we have these uh, emergency bivy sacks. It's a glorified giant garbage bag, basically, that keeps you warm. It has reflective material on it. So we decided to cut armholes and a head hole in there and then put it on as like a dress, basically. And then we went out and paddled to go nowhere, but just to keep warm long enough for the tide to change. So it was a, it was a, a futile exercise, but it kept us warm long enough for the tide to change to be able to keep moving forward. There's been a few other times where um, it happens actually, I won't say frequently, but it happens once in a while in a race where you, you know, it's pouring rain, it's the middle of the night and everyone has just put on their last piece of dry clothing that was in their pack. And everyone just kind of, you can see everyone kind of looks at each other like, if this doesn't work, not sure what we're going to do next, you know? So there's times where you have to keep moving not because you want to, but because you don't really have a choice. You have right. to stay warm or trying to figure out how to, how to manage that. Or if you have a, a teammate that's you know, severely cold, how do you, how do you deal with those things? We were, uh, uh, it was a world championships in Ecuador and we were exhausted, but we were in the middle of, of the jungle. And you can see, you know, spider eyes all over the place and stuff like hundreds all over the place everywhere you look. Cause it's nighttime and you can, your lights reflecting off all of them. So we were exhausted, but you, you can't lay down on the ground there. So you have to keep moving. There's no question about that. So things like that where you find yourself in a situation where you, you can't do what you want to do because nature doesn't allow you to do that. Uh, same thing with, you know, really bad weather or snowstorms or things like that when you're trying to go over a mountain pass. So you learn very quickly to think twice and be very respectful of nature. Now you had mentioned earlier that, you know, being an adventure racer is really a lifestyle. And when I'm recalling your story of how, you know, you, you really became a part of a new community, you learned new skills, you fell in love with a lot of the activities, you, you really fell in love with being outside and being active out in nature. Um, but this is an evolution that took, you know, several years. And if you were to kind of dispense advice to someone who, um, would love, let's just say, to have such a strong relationship with physical activity, even if it's not on the competitive side, but just this uh, being so compelled like you are to be outside active every day, what advice would you give to someone who is maybe at the start of this journey or start of a journey like you were 
you know, 15, 16 years ago. When I did my first race, I didn't necessarily think I would be any good at it. I just was really curious about it. I just, I wanted to, to know, I wanted to try it to see how hard it was or what it, you know, what it would bring me. But I didn't, it's funny because a lot of sports before, I think I was, I was always a good athlete. And so I wasn't that scared to try new sports because I figured, oh, I'll be, I'll be okay at it and then I'll learn it. This one was more generated by my curiosity about what it was about and what it, what it might be like to do some of those things. I think that's, that was a, a different experience for me. Um, it was coming from a different place. So I would, you know, I would encourage people to, to think about what things catch their curiosity. What kind of things do they think about? And maybe sometimes say, Oh, I don't think I could do that. But the fact that they've thought about it, you know, like it, it's just, it's very easy to discount things as being, Oh, I probably couldn't do that for X number of reasons. Right. I think, I think we do that all the time, but it's trying to stop yourself and say, okay, well, but have I tried it? Do I know if I really like it or don't like it or whether it fits me if I haven't tried it yet? And I think that would be the, the biggest piece would be to, to try it and see if you like it. Try it, you know, at least once or maybe a couple times. And sometimes things, you know, kind of like my experience, they don't have to be comfortable to be something that you want to do again. Right. I think we often get distracted by that. We think, oh, that would be so hard. And I've learned to say, maybe that's part of it. Maybe it suits you. Maybe it brings you some, it brings you to a place that you feel good about yourself. Right. Because you've stepped up to a challenge. And it doesn't mean you always have to necessarily even complete that challenge. Like one of the, one of the most amazing things about adventure racing is it's a huge culture of storytelling. Storytelling is a really, really important part of the sport. When someone crosses the finish line or doesn't cross the finish line, everybody wants to know what happened to them. And to the point where even the best teams in the world want to hear the stories of the teams that didn't finish because they want to know what did you do there? What happened there? Or if a, a strong team for some reason doesn't finish, everyone wants to know like what happened. So there's this massive culture of storytelling and it's not all about winning. What kind of adversity did you come up against and how did you deal with it? It's about hearing other people's experiences of struggle. It doesn't have to be on a grand scale like that. I think for, you know, even if it's someone who's running their first 5k, it's, it's learning to doubt your own doubts. It's, it's all about, I felt this thing inside of me that I wanted to do, even though I was scared to do it, or I felt like maybe I couldn't do it, but I tried it. I showed up, I tried it. And how did I deal with that challenge? And I think there's so much to be gained there, even even if you're not successful at it. But if you if you liked the trying part of it, if you liked the challenge part of it, I think that's something that tells you this: you're on to something. It may not be the exact thing, but you're on to something. So you need to explore that more. You're pointing in the right direction. You're getting warmer onto something that you may want to do long term. That may allow you to feel how you want to feel. Such terrific advice there at the end. I just want to give a heartfelt thank you to James Galpo for joining me and sharing some of the intricacies of his fitness journey, one that really started modestly from humble beginnings, as they say, and evolved incrementally to the point where he's an elite adventure racer. And I think more importantly, at least more importantly for the context of the show, how his lifestyle has changed quite significantly since he started his journey, since his days as a sporty guy and a handball player. And, you know, that journey's included being a part of new a new community, a new routine from week to week. 
and uh, dozens upon dozens of new friendships. And it's just an amazing thing to hear. And I just love how he really reinforced how you can't really go wrong if you follow your curiosity. You'll never regret following your curiosity. And yeah, it takes bravery. I mean, he showed instances of being brave and and uh, taking the leap from one community to another. And that takes bravery. That takes bravery to walk into something new and try it and and admit that, yeah, you know, I'm not not very good at this, and but it's still very cool to try and very cool to do. And and it really goes again with that whole idea that, you know, you're just a little bit of bravery away from possibly something transformational. And I just love that part of his story. So thanks again to James for sharing all that. With that, thanks for your ear again. Why not share this interview with someone who you think would also enjoy it? And of course, until next time, here's to living happily ever active. This episode of Happily Ever Active has ended, but be sure to subscribe for more content on the mental side of fitness. Oh, and don't forget to rate and review the show. See you next time.